Um, with that, let's read Psalm 111 and 112. And uh, we're going to talk about some reasons that we can give thanks today. Psalm 111, the Lord prays for his goodness. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Greater the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear him. He will remember his covenant forever. He has made known to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and righteousness and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light arises in darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment, for he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. He has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. The wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Lord, as we look into your word this morning and we see how we can see what you are doing in us and through us and in the world around us, Lord, may it draw us to you in worship and in praise and in thanksgiving for what you do every day that we come to take for granted so much. We give you the honor and the glory and the praise in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at this passage in Psalm 111, I started off and it was just really going to be Psalm 111, but um, linguistically and really um, uh, theme-wise, the two Psalms go together. And, and the reason is, as we start to look through it, you'll probably see it more, and I'm going to try to draw it together without any big diagrams or anything, but the first Psalm is really about looking at God and seeing what God has done. Psalm 112 then comes in as a, as a set, a part of the set, looking at what, what, because of our attitude towards God and thankfulness and in gratefulness and in fear of him, then what God turns around and has done through us and is working out in our lives to the world around us. And so together, these two Psalms work as kind of an A and a B to the uh, to show what we're praising God for. We always talk about we need to give thanksgiving to God. We always think about especially at this time of the year where we have a day set aside in our nation's calendar to give thanks to God. We always think about, you know, Give thanks to God, give praise to him. But the psalmist here has taken a lot of effort. This psalm, you can't tell it in our English translations. And believe me, I'm not going to try to read Hebrew to you because that would be a complete failure. But 
but it is an acrostic poem where the first, you'll notice that both Psalms start, they all, they both have 10 verses. Each one of those verses has two lines, except for the initial phrase, praise the Lord, which is hallelujah. The, um, each one of those starts with Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dal. It's the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and it goes, and it goes all the way through there so that all 20 letters of the Hebrew alphabet are covered. And then the next Psalm, Psalm 112, does the exact same thing. And, the, the, the author did not just simply sit down one day and just say, wow, I'm, I'm, looking, I'm thinking about God and how thankful I am, so I'm just going to sit down and write this out. If you've never tried to write poetry that has the correct meter and the correct rhyme and the correct, you know, everything has to be right, it's very difficult to do that. So the psalmist here puts a lot of work and a lot of effort into saying why he's thankful for God, what God has done for him. So let's look at how he lays this out and how we can see what what our thanksgiving is supposed to be towards God and what we can see God doing in and around us. He starts off and he says, praise the Lord. We're going to look at this a little later as we come into Psalm 112. Um, So he starts immediately, though, with thanksgiving and with praise. And he says, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. And then he says this phrase. He says, and I think it's key. They are studied by all who delight in them. The the way that the psalmist is going to lay this out is that he's going to look at the works of the Lord and what does he say? What does his heart response come from? It comes from the fact that he doesn't just look around and say, wow, that's pretty cool. That's a tree. That's pretty neat to look at. No, he looks at it. He says, I studied the works of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I am not a fan of studying. Sometimes I am. But when I was in college, my grades reflected the fact that I am not a fan of studying. My high school grades were a little better. But in college, the last thing I wanted to do was be sitting at a desk. And so, uh, you know, I would find every reason not to sit in that classroom. I'd find every reason to do about as little work as possible just simply because, you know, if you've, and you're at least in your undergraduate work, you're taking a whole bunch of classes you don't want to take, like English. Math 100, because I'm, I'm like dumb like that and don't want to take any of those higher maths. So I'm taking like the lowest level math. And then the last, and you know, um, I've just finished boot camp, especially right before my freshman year. And all I want to be doing is probably on active duty in the Marine Corps, thinking I made a mistake or something, or looking forward to the weekend because I can go out on a date with Beth, who then I was dating. And um, so, you know, it's hard to put the effort in to study. And yet the psalmist says what he did with the works of the Lord, what drove him to this level of thanksgiving was that when he looked at what God was doing, he studied it to see just how much was involved. And I think in our own lives, if we take some time as we look through this today, And if you go back to your house this week, as we're early in November, and you start looking at just what God has done in the past, as you read his word, what God has done in the past, if you want to think about it as a national holiday, and you look at what God has done for even our nation and for its heroes as we celebrate Veterans Day this week, and all these other, these other things that we can see around us. And then you start looking in your own life at what God has really done for each one of us. 
And you start really studying that and not just taking it for granted, not just looking at it as, oh, well, yeah, that happened. That's good. But really start to look at it and say, wow, what did it take for God to be able to do that for me? Well, then you get a different picture of God that drives you to worship Him, to give Him praise, and to give Him the thanksgiving that we should all give Him all the time of the year, but especially this time as we're thinking about thanksgiving. Now, the first thing that, what we see here in this, these first couple verses is that Thanksgiving happens in a couple of ways. Thanksgiving happens personally. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. Ultimately, what we should be doing every day is individually, we should look inside of ourselves and say, what do I have that I can give thanks to God for? He's, that's personal right there. When he says that he, is, that he will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart, that's an individual responsibility. It means that wherever he's at, I could be driving in my car down the road and, and be, have a near miss and recognize the fact that, you know what, that could have sent me to the hospital or it could have sent me to a grave. And, and right there immediately say, God, thank you. You were the only one that spared me from that. I can look at my child, at my at my son every day and say, even when he's a little fussy and be, wow, thank you, Lord. It took a long time and we're glad he's here. You know, every little thing, what are we doing personally, looking inside of ourselves and say, I will make the personal commitment to give thanks to God. Because I'll tell you, it's really easy to not give thanks. It's very easy to become negative and I am the world's worst about it. And it's very easy to get focused on the, on, on the, the nitpicky things and the bad things and the negative things. And all of a sudden, our attitude is not one of thanksgiving. It's not one of grace towards people around us. It's one of constantly looking for the argument. It's one of constantly uh, going for the negative. It's always seeing the glass, um, you know, less than, less than full, even though God has given us so much to be thankful for. But then he, he doesn't stop there. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and the assembly. Now, what's that? That's when the congregation comes together for in his context. That's when the, that's when the people of Israel would come together at the temple to worship God corporately as a body for us. That means when we come together in this building, it is the greatest privilege to be able to get together with fellow believers and to gather together. And one of the things that we're able to do is to give thanks to God as a church as the body of Christ. And there's no greater... I, I personally think there's, there's not a more unifying time than what we do at Thanksgiving here at Valley Baptist, and I really do like it, of having both the services come together and just taking some time, you know, making it into a time where, you know, not all of us like the same types of foods or anything else, but we can, we can, we can gather and we can eat those foods and most importantly, we can just have a time to, as the body of Christ, come together and just focus on thanking God. Because God has been so good to our church. He doesn't just give individuals blessings. He gives His people blessings as a whole. And so what we can look at the church and we can say, what has gone on for the last year that maybe we've overlooked, that maybe we haven't taken time to really focus on, and we can give God praise and thanksgiving for that. So... That's what, uh, you know, he, those are the two ways that we see Thanksgiving right away up front. And then it says, 
it, then, it, then it brings us to the focus of where these, these psalms are going to go. Great are the works of the Lord. Thanksgiving will come by studying God's works. Whether that's for you individually or whether it's for us as a church. The more we see where God is working, the greater our level of thanksgiving will be. So what happens? What do we see when we study God's works? That's where this first psalm really focuses at. The first thing we see here is in verse 3. It says, Splendid and majestic is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. Now, what we're going to see here is this, this psalm is going to work to kind of a, a focal point or a crescendo at, um, verses, at verses uh, six, and, 6 through 8. That's kind of the focus point, and, and they all kind of then bring back out to this. And I'll kind of tie them together as we go through there. But the first thing we see here is that God's works display honor and majesty and His eternal righteousness. Um, now, what does that really mean? When God... It, it, as, as the psalmist looked throughout the entire world, we're told in the scriptures that there's things that God does that benefit every single person. Even those that don't know God. Even those that say there is no God. Even those that refuse to place their faith in Jesus Christ. In uh, Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, Psalm 8, 1 through 4, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who have displayed your splendor above the heavens from the mouth of infants and nursing babes. You have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? David there was focusing on one of the things that, that every single person in the world is truly blessed by God for. And, and you don't really even have to, I believe looking at nature draws you to God if you, have the, if, if you let it. But ultimately, even a person who denies Jesus Christ and refuses to believe in God can go out and look at the same moon and the stars and the beauty that's all around us every single day. And I don't know how they can still reject God, but they still get the blessing of it. And so God has created the world, and we call it natural revelation. In other words, God has revealed himself to every single person. And we're told in Romans 1 that even if they refuse your message and they reject the scriptures, that every person is accountable simply because they live in a created world that, that God has created, and therefore they're without excuse because they see God revealed in creation. And so God has revealed himself through his creative work that benefits every single person. It's just some people don't choose to look at it in that perspective. But there's also a work that he does, and that's where I think the psalmist is here. He says splendid and majestic is his work. But there's also a work that he does individually for his people, for believers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says this, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And it would be a mistake for us to think that 
the only time we can see God is by going out and having a, a, the beauty of nature around us. I know there's some people, and, and believe me, I like to run, and I like to run in really pretty places because it helps my mind focus, and I feel like it gives me this focus on, on God that I sometimes don't have when I'm just in the normal, everyday doing stuff at home and trying to keep things going and, you know, you have all these things going on. But truly, we should be able to look in our own lives and as believers see that God is doing a work within each one of us. A work that, while we may not look at it and think it's as majestic as creation, in reality, it's better. He's taking a living, breathing human being who was born as a sinner, someone who was completely against him, someone who the Bible describes as completely without hope, and he's taking that sinner and he's creating them into a new creation, into somebody who reflects the image of God. Now, this is going to be important because at the end of Psalm 112, he's going to come all the way back around. And we're going to see that what God is trying to do within each one of us is that he, if we let God work in us, as we learn to fear Him and give Him thanks for what He is doing in our lives, instead of trying to run them ourselves, what we see is that we begin to reflect the righteousness and the honor and the glory of God through our lives. And that ultimately that is what He's trying to do. His creation is here for everybody. But it's only to those of us who know God through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that we can experience Him creating us to be who He wants us to be. And we can reflect the glory of God that's reflected in the creation around us. And so he comes in now into the fourth verse and he says, He has made His wonders to be remembered. So the first thing we saw was that God's works display this honor and this majesty and this eternal righteousness. The second thing we see is that God's works should be remembered. This word to be remembered here, it it carries the connotation of proclamation with it. That it's not just it comes to mind, but that when it comes to mind... It comes to our mind in such a way that we have to tell other people about it. That we have to make sure that other people know how great our God is and how wonderful He is. And so we're, we're to remember the redemptive works of God by proclaiming what He has done. You know, when the people of Israel, all through this passage, this is speaking to the people of Israel. There's a very good chance that this, these psalms were read, to, they were, they were read together and they were read on, on, a, on a, they don't, they don't have an exact, like they don't know which feast it was or anything, but there's a very good chance they were publicly read by the, uh, the priest in the temple. And so as the priest would read these, what was he doing? He was proclaiming his wonders to be remembered. They would literally read through the, 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 the first five books, the, the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, they would just read through that, proclaiming it. That was how they reminded the people that, hey, do you remember when you were slaves in Egypt? What did God do for you? He brought you out. He threw a sea back and let you walk across on dry land. He destroyed the chariots of the Egyptians who were the greatest army on earth so he could bring you out and give you a land. And then he raised up Joshua and all these judges. And then ultimately he raised up King David who he promised he would bring a a future king through who would reign for eternity. And, And it was a reminder to the people of what they had been through as they, he, they proclaimed God's works. 
So God's works should be remembered. How do we remember God's works? We can get so complacent with just what God has done for us. That's why going to a place like Mexico is so good. Because, you know what, there are days where I'm like, you know, my, my car isn't perfect and, and maybe it starts making a noise and, oh man, I got to take it to the dealer. You know, I got to take it up here to get fixed again. Okay, Lord, why in the world can't you just give me $30,000 so I can go out and buy a brand new car that's going to last me better than this old Toyota Corolla? Instead of looking at it like, wow, God, you provided so I can have two cars sitting in my, in my, at my house that very rarely need to be fixed and people around the world would love to even have one car. And we can get so complacent with what God has done for us and we lose sight of all the many blessings that we have. And from a spiritual standpoint, and we look at, we, we do lose sight of the physical, but then we also lose sight of what God has done, what type of God we serve. And when we read His Word, the reason why He told, tells His people to look back at what God has done for them, this psalm points them back to the fact that they were delivered from Egypt, that God did bring them into a promised land, that God did raise up a king who ultimately pushed out all these other nations and made them into the great nation that they were at that time. Why did he tell them to do that? Because by remembering those things, and every time we read the Bible, even when we read the Old Testament, that same God who destroyed the Egyptian army is the same God that can destroy any problem that comes into our life. He's the same God who has the same power to raise us up to do the things that he's called us to do, just like he did for David, a man after God's own heart. And so every time we go to God's word and we look at these stories, we can look at them as more than just a nice story in an ancient book. They are truly the living word of God that shows us who God is and what he does on behalf of his people. And we can cling to those promises. And so he goes on from there and he ends verse four by saying, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Because what happens when you look at God's works? What you're going to see when you start looking at what work God has done is that we don't serve a capricious God. We don't serve a God who changes his mind on a whim. We don't serve a God who's just looking to strike us down, which is what some of us kind of feel like God is, depending on our raising or our church background or whatever. We see a God who is gracious and compassionate towards people. Even in the middle of sending his people in to destroy the nations in the promised land that he sent them into, one of the reasons he says that he had them wander around for 40 years in the wilderness, not just because they had disobeyed him with the spies thing, but he actually makes the statement that, that the people that were in the land, their sin was not to the point where God was going to give them one last chance. God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and God's mercy and grace and compassion is beyond anything that we can understand. Gracious here is a heartfelt response by someone who has something to give to one who has a need. We have nothing we can give God, but all of us have a need that only God can fill. All of us, according to Romans 3.23, were born a sinner and have fallen short of the glory of God. And there's only one being in the, in the universe who can meet that need. 
It's God and His forgiveness through His Son, Jesus Christ, and what He did through His shed blood on the cross. We can't be good enough to earn it. You can't be the right type of person because we are not the right type of people. And it's only through God's graciousness and His mercy that we can do that. What is compassion? Compassion as well is overwhelmingly spoken of by, by in, in, the, in the Old Testament and, and in the New Testament as well. Whenever you see grace and compassion, they're not used, you, 90% of the time, there's a few exceptions, they're not used showing it man to man. Because these words, at least in a biblical context, always show it coming from an inferior being, God, I mean, the superior being, take that back, God, to the inferior beings, me. And that's why God would make a mistake about the wording. Um, and so you have this picture of God that we can't repay this kind of grace. We can't repay this kind of compassion. His compassion is, 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 is shown as being God towards us. And nothing, neither of these have anything to do with our behavior. Exodus 33.19 says this. Exodus 33.19 says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And you will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I show compassion. God does not show compassion and grace towards because Ben Howard deserves it. I don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. But God in His mercy and grace reaches down to us and says, you don't deserve it, but I love you anyway. And I care about you anyway. And I'm going to be compassionate and gracious and loving towards you in spite of your sin. And all you have to do is accept Jesus Christ and find the forgiveness and the mercy and the restoration from all of those wrong things that we've ever done. And so God's works reflect His character of grace and mercy. But then what else does God's works reflect? He goes on in verse 5 and He says, He has given food to those who fear Him. Now this seems like a little simple thing. We all eat every single day. Yesterday, I ate a lot of food. And it was really good. We worked hard, don't get me wrong. But um, there were a few of us that we really didn't want to leave Mexico without having some fantastic street tacos because, I'm sorry, it's just it's Mexico and you have to have those amazing little delicious things. And so we stopped at a restaurant and we ate a couple of tacos and then a few of us said we need more tacos and so we ate more tacos and then a few of us said we really want more tacos so we ate more tacos. And then, of course, when you're coming back into the United States, they have lines of food there. That, and so we, we had to try some of those and... Yeah, it, it was really good. And um, so we understand food. I understand food. I love food. And um, But why does he, you know, he's talking these great things about God. And then he says, he's given food to those who fear him. Well, I think what he's saying here is God's works are clear and blessing to those who fear him. You know what? The simple fact is there's people all over the world today who are eating. How many of those recognize that that food is a pure gift from God. Even for those of us who know Jesus Christ, this is where he's getting into the nitty-gritty of life. You know, sometimes it is easy to see God working in our lives. And we can look and say, man, God cured me of cancer. Well, praise the Lord. That is an amazing thing to give God praise for. But what about the everyday things? It may be, maybe it's not even the car, the, the house, the other stuff. 
What about just that simple food that you eat? That bowl of cereal in the morning that, that you know, it's like, oh, well, whatever. I went to the store and paid $2 for a box of cereal and some milk. But you wouldn't have that money if it wasn't for God. You, there would be nobody to make that food if it wasn't for God. Everything that we have, and I don't care whether it comes from Walmart or from a store shelf or from, or from our own kitchen, it comes from God. And there's a reason why throughout history we have this tradition going all the way back to the, 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 the Israelites of, uh, and, and what developed into Judaism of a tradition of praying before a meal. There's a reason that we, we call it, we ask a blessing upon our meal and, and, we, and, and whether you call it grace or a blessing or a prayer or whatever, it's, if we really think about what we're saying, we're recognizing the fact that even in the little things of life, God's blessing and grace are present towards us. And how many times do we take those for granted? So God's works are clear to those who fear Him. It's by, even in the food. And then he goes on in verse, uh, in verse 5, and he continues, and he says, He will remember his covenant forever. Now, I'm gonna, the most, a couple of few minutes are going to be spent in these next three verses. Because ultimately, this is where it's leading to. He's saying, look at the works that God has done. And for his people Israel, and including for us, it doesn't matter where you fall down theologically on the Bible, where you come down with your systems or anything else, every single person who's ever tried to systematize the Bible or say what they believe according to the scriptures, when they look at God, it basically comes down to these things we call covenants. And covenants are simply, we, we try to make them into a lot, but they're simply a, 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 a solemn promise by God towards us in, in how he's going to treat us in a certain way. We talk, about, they're, they're, we talk about covenants between human beings as well. Um, it, but the interesting thing is that when the covenant is used between God and man, what we see in the scriptures is that ultimately the covenant is usually God to us. It's not us going to God and saying, you know what, God, I'll make a deal with you. We have no power in this situation. Instead, it's God coming to a man like Adam and saying, Adam, you failed. But guess what? It's part of the promise to Eve I will take your failure and I will make sure that at some point in time there will come someone from your offspring that will crush the head of the tempter, Satan. Ultimately, it's about a God who comes to a man named Noah who's simply living his life and doing nothing and doing, doing, trying to follow God and, 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 and just simply going about his business. And he comes to Noah and says, and says Noah, build me an ark. Um, God, it's never rained. There's no water. No, Noah, I said build me an ark. Okay, God, I'll build an ark. And they float around, you know the story, and it, finally the water recedes, and he comes out of the ark, and God looks at Noah and says, Noah, I promise I will never, ever again destroy the earth by water. Noah had no power in that promise at all. He couldn't keep that promise. He didn't make the water start in the first place. But instead, God said, you know what? I will never destroy man. I will never destroy the entire human race with water again, and I'll give you a rainbow in the sky as a promise to that effect. And so it doesn't matter whether there's floods in one part of the world. It doesn't matter whether there's floods in another part of the world. God will never again destroy the entire earth with a flood because he promised he wouldn't, and it had nothing to do with us. 
And then he came to a man named Moses. And he said, Moses, uh, he came to a man named Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And Abraham's looking at him going, I don't have any kids, God, and I'm 90. That doesn't matter, Abraham. And, he, and Abraham even tried to circumvent God and said, okay, fine, I'll take Hagar and I'll, I'll have a, a son with her and that'll be the person of promise. And God said, nope, that's not the one. And in fact, he said, but, hey, but Hagar, I'll make your son into a great nation, but that's still, my, 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 that's still not my plan. And ultimately, he has, he has uh, Isaac when he's 99 years old. Sarah's 99 years old. And ultimately, you come even further, and he comes into a man named Moses, and Moses has killed an Egyptian. He's lived as an Egyptian. His own people don't like him. The Egyptians don't like him. And ultimately, God comes to Moses and says, Moses, you're going to take my people out of Israel, and you're going to lead them to the promised land. And Moses says, that's not me, God. And God says, I don't care what you said. You're the one. And it's my covenant. It's my promise. It's my people, and I'm just using you. And he did. Ultimately, the covenants in the Bible are about a promise-keeping God who promised Abraham that he was going to make him into a great nation. And even when they ultimately went down to Egypt and they find themselves in slavery and God comes along and says, you may be in slavery now, but my plan didn't change. My covenant's still the same. You're still going to be my people. I'm still going to raise up the ultimate Messiah out of your line. And so he raises up Moses. He raises up David. He raises up Solomon. He takes them all the way down, and you can trace it to the New Testament, when ultimately his covenant is about Jesus Christ. And he gives the new covenant. The new covenant is the one he had been promising all along through Noah, through Moses, through through Abraham, through David, is about Jesus Christ. And it's about the sins of the whole world. And it's about God promising that if we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that he will give us a new life and a new birth and a new hope. Because our sin has entrapped us and enslaved us. But Jesus Christ is the hope. He's the covenant. And God is the covenant keeper. And so we can go... um, from that and see in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 22 where it says so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant we can go to Matthew 26:28 and we can see where Jesus at the last supper says for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins it's all about the fact that if anyone comes to Christ just as in the old testament God kept his covenants with the people of Israel Some of those were conditional based on their obedience. Some of them were not. But ultimately, the covenant between human beings and God when it comes to salvation is not conditional. Any person that places their faith in Jesus Christ is promised forgiveness. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will, you shall be saved. So he will remember his covenant forever. The power, and then he goes on and he says in verse 6, 7, and 8, he says, He has made known to his people the power of his works, in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. You see, what happened here was, remember, this is being read to the people of Israel. In their mind, when they think about God's covenants, they think about the fact that they know very well that God promised to a man named Abraham a thousand years ago that God would raise up a great nation. They also know that ultimately Abraham's descendants ended up in Egypt 
a place where they were enslaved. But God had said, no, there's going to be a promised land and you're going to inherit it. And that ultimately God has brought them out into that land. And so as they listen to this, the people of Israel could see as they look back on their history that God had kept his covenants to their forefathers. He had made known the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. You see, when they went into the promised land, there were already people there. God had said, this is your land, but as they were there looking across the Jordan River, what did they see? They didn't see a land that said, welcome to Israel. They saw a land that said, welcome to the Philistine territory. Welcome to the Moabite territory. Welcome to the Edomite territory. And God said, this is your land. And I'm going to give it to you. You have to just trust me enough to go in and take it. Unfortunately, at first they didn't. But after a while, they kind of got the picture and said, whoa, you know what? We can trust God. He's already done a lot. And so they did it. But it's all about the fact that he was driving them back to remember what God had done and the works he had done for them. And when it says that the works of his hands are truth and justice and his precepts are sure, by looking back and seeing what God has already done and keeping his promises, we can know that when God said something, he didn't lie. He's a God of truth. When he says something and it sounds in our, our, in our eyes harsh, because I'll tell you, when you tell someone Jesus Christ is the only way into heaven, there is no other. You can't be good enough. You can't go follow another religion. You can only come through Jesus Christ who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When you tell someone that, it doesn't come across as loving in many cases. And they're going to look at you and say, well, that's a terrible system. Why would God ever say that? God is a God of justice. And I know in our human way of looking at things, because sin has so clouded our minds and our ability to see truth, that we look at that and, 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 and a human being apart from Jesus Christ would look at that and say, well, that's unloving. That's unmerciful. How can you say that God is, that God is a God of mercy? It's because God is a God of justice. And holiness and sin cannot live together. But our God is a just God who in his covenants provided a way for man to be in perfect relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. So he's a God of truth and justice. And he says they're upheld forever and ever. Just like God promised way back to Abraham that he would make him a great nation, and he did. Just like God promised that there would be a land for his people, and there was. Just like God promised the Messiah would come and we can look at the New Testament and we can see that Jesus Christ came. When God promises us something, His promises don't change. His truth doesn't change. And if God has called you to do something and you know that God is in it, then God will take you through it. And there's nothing too hard or too big or too, or too, too above that is impossible for God. With God, all things are possible. That's what God's covenants are all about. God's covenant is ultimately about redeeming His people. Verse 9 says this, He has sent redemption to His people. He has ordained His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. You see, we look at the covenants, and you can get really nitpicky and start saying, okay, well, was this one conditional? Does this mean they're going to be here forever? Does this mean He's going to do this? Does this mean He's going to do this? Ultimately, every single one of those was ultimately about bringing Jesus Christ to the world. And why did he want to bring Jesus Christ to the world? So he could redeem us. 
because He loves us, because He cares about us. It's about people. It's about nations. It's about every person falling at the feet of Jesus Christ and worshiping Him as God and Father for all of eternity. Everyone's not going to recognize Him. But our job, our mission, is to take God's glory out into all of the world so that we become a part of the work that God is doing. When we walk out of these doors, we walk into Valley Center, and they should look at our church as members of Valley Baptist Church and say, that's what God is doing in the world, and I want to be a part of that. And so we become a part of the work that God is doing. And we can trust Him to do that work for each one of us. Now what's going to happen is he start he, that was kind of the focal point there the purpose of God's work and his covenant. And 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 as he as he builds on this, he's going to start bringing us back into the 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 drawing us into the 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 other parts of this in what he's doing in each one of us. And so he goes on in verse 10 and he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. You see, recognizing God's work, when you do this, because that's what we're called to do, recognize God's work. When you do that, it leads to fearing God. And this ties back into the, the, because ultimately you'll see like words that kind of, they, they had, he uses the same words in, 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 in phrases that are exactly opposite of each other to, to call us to remember those past phrases. And what happens here is as we recognize God's work leading to fearing him, that then leads to blessing for those who fear him. Remember how he started this back in um, verse five, he says, um, Uh, Or back in verse uh, 5, he says, He has given food to those who fear Him. So he starts off with, If you fear me, I'm going to bless you. Well, what happens? When we start looking at what God has done and we start seeing those blessings, God's going to bless us more. And so he comes here and he starts off this next section and he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commands. His praise endures forever. There's a lot of people walking around that have PhDs and, and D-somethings D and doctor this and doctor this who spend a lot of time in college learning, learning knowledge, but they don't understand anything about wisdom. Because true wisdom comes from God. True wisdom comes from understanding who we are. And understanding myself means that I understand that I'm imperfect that I'm a fallen human being, that ultimately I need God to rescue me from my sin, and that it's only through Jesus Christ that that can happen. That's what true wisdom is all about. And so when he comes to this and he says, when you look at God's work, it doesn't lead you to then look at yourself and say, wow, what a great person I am. Because you know what? I didn't create those stars. I didn't make a life happen. I can't cure cancer And neither can a doctor. They can only give you a medicine and hope it cures your cancer. And yes, we should trust them. But ultimately, God can do anything He wants. And ultimately, it's about God who is totally powerful, all-powerful, all-knowing, able to do anything for any one of us at any time. And when we look at that, that's wisdom. And when we look at what God has done, it should drive us to our knees and say, thank you, God, because I am imperfect and I can't do it on my own. 
And so he starts to build this back up, and now he comes into the next chapter. He starts once again here with praise the Lord. Now this word here, I didn't talk about it much the first time. This word is hallelujah. And ultimately, this is the greatest term of thanksgiving. We don't, you know, we say hallelujah because there's nothing better that we really have in English. We can translate it praise the Lord because that's literally what it means. But, but what is praise? What is hallelujah? What is Yah is Yahweh? That's God's personal name for himself. But it's literally recognizing the fact that God is bigger than us, that, he, that, we, are, that we are subservient to him, that everything is because of God. What an awesome word. And the interest, and, and this is another word that ties these passages together because hallelujah, um, pr- uh, it opens up so, lots of the Psalms. About 28 times it's used in the Psalms. This is the only place where when it opens a Psalm, it doesn't also close the Psalm. So 111 and 112 are tied together also by the fact they both open with hallelujah, but neither one of them ends with the word hallelujah. Every other time you see it, it actually opens and closes that Psalm. So um, that's the only reason it's real important. But the, uh, he goes on, he says, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, how greatly, who greatly delights in his commandments. What is it that fear the Lord means? People argue about it all. I mean, there, you can read commentaries and they'll literally argue back and forth some a little minor nuances about what it means to fear the Lord. Ultimately, I believe this defines it. It says, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Fearing the Lord is nothing more than looking at Him and saying, I need to obey this God. I need to obey the God who created the universe, who saved me, who took me out of my sins. And so it drives us to when we read His Word, we apply it to our lives. And we say, God, I know I'm imperfect and I need Your help to do it, but by, by, by trusting in Your Holy Spirit, I'm trusting You to change my life to reflect your holiness and your character and your righteousness. And that's simply what fearing the Lord is. It's keeping His commandments. And he goes on in here in verses 2 and 3, and he says, His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in His house, and His righteousness endures forever. What is it going to look like when we start to look at God, see His works, and fear Him? It's going to be God working in us to cause us to reflect God's character, which is grace and mercy. You see, when you look at God's grace and mercy, it should make you a more gracious and merciful person. And so we look at these verses and it says his descendants will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house. His righteousness endures forever. He goes on in verse four and he says, light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. That same grace and mercy that God showed you, you'll show to others. That same grace and mercy that God showed you, because it reflects in how you treat your kids, how you live your life. Ultimately, your children will then follow God based on your example. It says here, his descendants will be mighty. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. It's, they're not rich because they strove to get riches. They're rich because God has blessed them. Because they were willing to put God first in everything. They were willing to trust their their future, their children to God. And see what God was going to do with them. And so that's where it says their descendants are blessed. Part of God's blessing that comes as we fear God 
is we have peace and joy even in the middle of adversity. That grace and compassion can still be ours even when we're going through hard times. It says that light arises in the darkness for the upright. You are still going to go through hard times. When it says that he gives them riches, uh, wealth and riches are in his house, I don't necessarily think this is all the time. God's going to give us big, big piles of gold in our backyard. That'd be nice. It's not going to happen. But what is he going to do for you? You may still go through hard times. You are going to go through times that are rough and that are difficult. But in the middle of that darkness, God's going to provide a light. And God's going to be there for you every step of the way. He goes on in verse, uh, in, in verse, uh, in verse 5 and it says, It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment. What is this talking about? It's talking about the fact that um, the NIV actually translates it better. It says, good will come to those who are generous and lend fle- freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. Even the way that you start to conduct your business affairs reflects who God is. God is a God of justice. Your business affairs start to reflect that. You can't be someone who fears God and obeys his commands and mistreats other people in business. You can't be someone who says one thing and then does another. And so our lives start to reflect God's character. He goes on in, uh, in verse 6 and he says, For he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. Remember back to verse... Um, uh, uh, back in the past, he says in, in, verse, uh, in verse 3 there... Uh, I'm sorry, in verse 4, he says, He has made his wonders to be remembered. Well, now he says, For he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. At first, we're remembering God's righteousness. Now, God's remembering us. He says, For he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. In light of our knowledge of God's works, His power, His promises and covenants, the character of humility and grace that he is constantly developing within us. We have a confidence that no matter what we go through, we go through it with the power of God on our side. Philippians 4, 11 through 13 says this, Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know that how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Psalm chapter 18, verse 2 says, The Lord is my strength and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Part of God's covenant keeping ability is the fact that He's never going to forget you. You can't run too far from God and have Him forget that you're there. You can't be in the most miserable place on earth and have God forget that you're there. And even if it feels like you're going through, through literal hell and everything is coming down on you, God is there with you and he remembers you and he knows that you're his child and he knows what you're going through and he will be there with you every step of the way. He ends here in seven, seven and eight and he says, he will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. What a great promise that is. When you look and you see what God is doing and you know that his promise is he's going to be there forever, you can go through anything. It doesn't matter who rises up against you. You have the strength to overcome it. Not because we have that strength, but because God himself lives in us in his Holy Spirit and empowers us for everything he brings us through. 
the last thing we see here is remember how this started off. It started off all the way back at verse 3. And it says that God's works displayed His honor and eternal majesty. It said, Splendid and majestic is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. Listen to how this passage ends. He's given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. Now, at first, when I read that, I was like, okay, well, now we're talking about God again. But when you start looking at it, the context here, it's talking about you and me. I don't think of myself as being righteous, because I know I'm not. But in God's eyes, he's saying that ultimately what he's doing through all of this is that when we look at God's works, and it causes us to fear God, he's working in our lives to the point that he's not just going to make us better. He's not just going to make us a little bit different. He is going to change us to reflect His honor and His eternal righteousness. Those are the exact same words that were used of God. How is that possible? It's because when when God looks at us, He doesn't see a sinful human being anymore because of my faith in Jesus Christ and the covenant that God made with each one of us as we accept Jesus Christ. He looks at the righteousness of Jesus Christ and he says, all your sins have been paid for. All of your wrongs have been forgiven. And when I look at you, I see my son, Jesus Christ, who I loved, who is absolutely perfect. He's your righteousness. And I'm the, and, and God says, I'm the covenant keeper and I can accept you based on the righteousness that Jesus Christ has provided for you. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting, eternal life. Our righteousness that ends with eternal perfection and eternal honor is based on what Jesus Christ did for us. And ultimately, all of this is about God making you and me to reflect Jesus Christ. And if we have nothing else to be thankful for, we can be thankful that God took a sinful human being and every day is working in us to create a child that looks like the one that He put on a cross to die for my sin and your sin. He ends it with verse 10 and says, The wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Nothing can stand against you. It doesn't matter what evil people say. It doesn't matter how much they despise us. It doesn't matter how much they disagree with us. God is in control. And He will be the victor. Because He's a covenant-keeping God. As we think about Thanksgiving... Give thanks to God for His many works on your behalf, the greatest of which revolve around His covenant, His promise-keeping, with the greatest promise being your salvation, that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. For that and the continuing work that the Holy Spirit is working in us, we can say with the psalmist, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, thank You. For your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that though we were dead in trespasses and sins, you saved us. That, Lord, we can give you the praise every single day because you are creating us to be a new person, a new creation, to reflect your righteousness and holiness to the world around us, to become part of the work 
that you are doing in this world. For that we say thank you. We are grateful and humbled. We trust in your mercy and grace. In Christ's name, amen.